Welcome to another Wonus with your pals Morgan and Isabeau. What, what? Maybe not pals, with your casual acquaintances. People that you like to be around. In your ears. In your ears. Pumping through your car speakers. Serenading you in the shower. In your AirPods. Lulling you to sleep. In your AirPods? Gee, congratulations. <laughs> I really want AirPods now. I mean, I get it. Being tied to the cord now that I understand that my life could be so much better without the cord, I also want them. And you know they just like stop playing once you pull them out of your ear? I don't know how they know that. I know very little about technology, so I do assume that we have found a small species of fairy that we have (laughs) wrapped inside each AirPod. And the fairy just has to determine the equilibrium in the AirPod and stop playing your music via magic. That sounds like fairy slavery yeah no uh yeah in this imagining we've just enslaved the fae listen if you're mad about fairies being enslaved to make your airpods work you're gonna be really mad when you find out about the human slavery that goes into making airpods so true though (laughs) i am a debbie doubter i accused my mom of it the other day and then i was like oh 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 apple doesn't fall far from the tree and all that. (laughs) That's true. Although you should be conscientious of the amount of slave labor and the fact that slavery was not abolished in the United States and that prisoners are slave labor. Yes. And that slavery is inherently morally abject. Yes. And this week's bonus, we're going to talk about a big shift in romance. We're not on the cutting edge of this. This has been a while, but we thought for some of our listeners who are not as plugged into Romance Landia that we would have a brief check in about the changes in RWA, talk about why that was necessary, and like have a conversation around it. Yeah. Just for some of our like unanointed listeners, but also just like listeners who are like us. We're not RWA members, we don't get the newsletter. We don't write romance. We don't publish romance. We don't edit romance. We just talk about it. We just read it and pay for it and talk about it. So what happened with RWA? Brief recap. December 23rd, 2019. Remember that billion years ago. We all retreated to the bosoms of our respective families for the holidays. RWA made an announcement that very popular romance writer Courtney Milan was going to be banned for life from the organization for actions that she had taken on Twitter and she was also being censured. They did this on a night when all of us were supposed to be away from our Twitter feeds wrapped in our families and our eggnog and instead what those people forgot is that we'd all be on our phones because we were trying really hard not to fight with our dads and Twitter blew up and RWA ended up having to redo the entire board. The president resigned, the president-elect Damon Swade resigned, all of the board members resigned, over 1,900 RWA members resigned. The Ritas were officially canceled. And there was a real dark night of the RWA soul. And a real question about whether or not RWA was going to go on. Publishers, Avon, Harlequin, Dell pulled out of the conference in July. People pulled out of the conference. Lines were drawn in the sand and things got pretty tough. They tried to reinstate Courtney Milan, but that horse was out the barn, as they say. To just illustrate how fucking wild stuff got, your erstwhile hosts, Morgan and Isabeau, were actually invited to participate in a panel with actual informed people in romance publishing (laughs) to talk about what happened. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And I was just like, I don't know. Sounds 
Sounds bad. Yeah, that was right before we all got locked down for COVID. Oh my God. It wasn't right before. I remember the big issue was the weather. Yeah. Anyways. So things got tough and then a new board came around. The temporary president is Alyssa Day and RWA is trying to fix itself, trying to make a good faith effort maybe about all of the problems, all of the systemic racism that came to a boiling head in late December, early January. And as part of that, the Ritas have remained canceled, but they have reinstituted them, calling them the Vivians, after RWA founder Vivian Stevens, who discovered, among others, Beverly Jenkins. She's a black editor who believed through not only her own work, but market research and everything else that she did, that black romance would sell and that romance authors needed an organization to go to bat for them against publishers and make sure that their stories were on shelves. And Vivian Stevens had this really lovely comment about the honor of having the new award named for her, which calls on us to think about all the ways that we're connected rather than the things that separate us, that, you know, we are indeed all made of star stuff. And, you know, they've redone the award so that the judging should be more fair. There'll be more diverse judges. There'll be sensitivity things that judges have to do before they can judge. And so hopefully some of the things that we're allowed to squeak through, like a Nazi romance that was nominated for a Rita, hopefully that won't happen with the Vivians. I feel like squeaked through is a generous read of what happened because it was nominated for two different awards. It was nominated for two. Okay, so RWA is renaming it the Vivian. I'm also changing some stuff about it. And you mentioned, Isabeau, that part of it is going to be the task force. So I'm looking at the proposed format that they put out end of May. So one of the notes here for judging is accountability. Yep. And it says the task force is focused on ways to bring accountability to the judging process and proposes that judges be required to sign a contract that affirms they will judge all entries according to the rubrics provided and be required to complete two training sessions, one in implicit bias and the other in how to judge according to the contest rubric. The goal of all judges must be to score each book in a fair and impartial manner according to the rubric. All judges' scores will be tracked from year to year to ensure compliance with the rubric. Can I talk about the rubric? Please. Like the concept of using a rubric to judge something like this is so interesting to me. And the fact that they didn't have one before? No, the fact that they want one at all. I know like science fairs are judged on a rubric, Mm -hmm. but I think about other large award systems such as the Academy Awards or any of those, the Golden Globes. Mm -hmm. That's like a really simple voting system from a pool of people. But then also just like the Peabody's, like there's not a rubric involved. And so the involvement of a rubric is really interesting as far as like judging something like a book, like a piece of art by a rubric. Well, I think like that's a tacit, if not explicit, showcasing that like the people who have been judging books in the past can't be trusted on their voting, right? Like the fact that it wasn't until 2019 that a black author won a Rita when they went up for them every year should suggest that the voting and judging categories are suspect, much like people would argue that the Academy suffers 
from this problem. Yeah, because the people in the academy are overwhelmingly white and male and overwhelmingly of a certain age. But I mean, the same process applies to like Critics' Choice and everything, which have more diverse voting pools. Mm -hmm. But of course, Critics' Choice Awards also have a greater diversity in their winners. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about applying a rubric? I know that, you know, it is a way of saying like we could not trust the people who judged before. Mm -hmm. But there's also this interesting framing of the judges. The task force proposes that judges be RWA members, booksellers, Mm -hmm. librarians, and book reviewers for the first two rounds. The third round of judges should be comprised of booksellers, librarians, and reviewers. So RWA members are taken out of it. Mm -hmm. Authors would not be involved in the final round of judging and all final round judges would be identified. Hmm. The task force is considering potential ways readers could be involved in the judging process. Hmm. And the way that they're accepting nominations is now submissions directly from the authors themselves. That's interesting, Isabeau. Mm -hmm. Or is it interesting? Is it dumb? I don't know that it's dumb. I mean, part of the problem of the Rita's and the Golden Hearts before is that it was sort of a pay to play. Yeah, which they're still working on. They're still working on. At the end of this, it says fees. The task force is discussing recommended fees. (laughs) Yeah. So the pay to play is still kind of going to be in play, it sounds like. And like, to be fair, like, I'm not sure that it shouldn't. I think that there should certainly be a grant system because like one of the problems of the readers before is that it was actually a financial burden that like publishers would cover the fee for authors. But if you didn't have a publisher or if it was your first time out, it might have been too prohibitively expensive for you to get your manuscript submitted. Mm -hmm. And like the thing that the reader really does is like other than being like a fun award is that it gets you recognition. It gets you in front of a much larger audience. It gets your book in front of people who can recommend it. All of my feelings are a little bit what I would call like um, wait and see. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not immediately opposed, but I'm also not immediately for Yeah, yeah, same, same. In my mind, I'm like, well, it would be really worthwhile to enter my own work into the competition. Mm -hmm. And then another part of me is like just the imposter syndrome-ness of it all, like that being a way of filtering. Putting the onus on an author to decide whether or not their work is worthy of the competition feels kind of wobbly to me. It's tough. Like, it's one thing if, like, your publisher's like, no, I think this is good enough. It's, like, one thing if you have someone outside of you being like, no, this is good enough. This is potentially worth the investment of entering the competition. Right. Versus, as you say, like, the potential of self-censorship or imposter syndrome preventing people from doing it. Or people just wasting their money. People who really don't have any business nor (laughs) self-awareness, you know, which happens a lot. And then that's an unnecessary financial burden on people. And of course, also, you would have to find judges to read everything, the first chapter of everything, at least. Right. And like, that's part of the problem of a slush pile, right? Yeah. Sometimes you can really find a diamond in the rough. Other times it's just like, you know, the labels on the tin. What if it was like a reader nomination thing? They're trying to talk about how to get readers involved. What if it was a readership nomination? The problem with the readership, again, likely echoes the problems that we've seen with the judging in the past, right? Where it's like those people that feel, you know, 
Oh, but now we're putting, okay, but that's a controversial statement, Isabeau, that the readers of romance are as culpable as judges. Well, no, not as culpable, but, you know, the idea that people who are submitting and reading are mostly going to be white and hetero and outside of the presumed norm that RWA is functioning under. I guess I mean to say that, like, I'm not immediately against reader nominations. I'm not immediately for them because I think they're, as we've discovered in Entropy, people who buy really problematic books, which means that there's still a market for them, right? Right. There was another chic novel published last month and Amish is like perennially popular and like well is there a subcategory for Amish romance like you can get an Amish romance award you know I don't know it would probably be under sweet romance and like as far as this rubric is talking there's a sophisticated matching process so that entrants can be sure their books go to judges versed in their subgenre yeah and so it's like you would want somebody in your subgenre you know to be reading your work versus somebody who like never read an Amish novel and you're like well this isn't for me so like this isn't as good as other books and I think like trying to cure that problem especially in paranormals and queer romances were pretty much just being thrown out because judges who were reading them were like this is terrible this isn't a romance so like having a guarantee of subgenre literacy yeah in a judge I think is only to the good totally but what about the nomination process you know I just don't know like I'm not immediately opposed to authors submitting for themselves supposedly if you had like a reader submission process you could have it broken down by subcategory and authors could submit their own stuff because you would just like I imagine just have like a website as opposed to like writing a formal paper letter right (laughs) and mailing it to RWA which could make it more like dancing with the stars right where it has like the reader component of votes being important yeah Okay, but like that's not the only check or balance. Right, right. Because you don't really need checks and balances until you get your pool and your pool could be determined just by you have to get X number of nominations or, you know, maybe there's some like weirdly specific subgenre, but that subgenre gets five nominations. Well, then we're going to create a category for this subgenre and have experts and non-experts determine what should be the award winner in that. You know, something like that would be interesting, I think. Which is why I think like having the last category especially be librarians yes yeah booksellers and bloggers I think that's actually a really interesting move because it's a move about marketability it's not bloggers it's reviewers hold on it's reviewers which also brings me to the question define a reviewer right like how are we defining reviewers do you have to be at a major publication or can you just be you know have a really popular Instagram account I don't know RWA hasn't contacted us for the sake of transparency or YouTube you know, I've been on Romance Review YouTube and uh, are they getting invited to review? And also, wouldn't it be beneficial to the genre to have people from outside of the genre at some point participate in the judging? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Or even have like educator. Like you could do that kind of broadly via like a random sample of professors or adjuncts at different institutions participate in the judging. But especially people who are working in 
popular romance, like academically, like that guy out of DePaul and Shelf Love is doing a really academic project. I think that would be only to the benefit of especially describing like what makes a stellar romance like worthy of an award. Right. Yeah. We kind of came up against that when we were talking about what makes woe versus no. And it's like, well, what do we do with something that is just truly like a good romance, but isn't a barnstormer or doesn't like flick your wick in all the ways that like other books have isn't transcendent. Right. But it's like it literally does the job that it's supposed to, which is be pleasurable and transporting. Yeah. And also be like a good book. Like I think a good book like that's never in question Mm -hmm. whenever we come up to the woe versus no. Mm -hmm. Like if something is tottering on the side. Well, you know, actually, oh, God, it's so sticky. It is. It's like genuinely sticky. It's just like sticky. But I think that would be interesting, you know, to bring in a perspective that's not necessarily super familiar with the genre or subgenre that they're judging early on so that it doesn't really affect the ultimate outcome. But I think it would be a worthwhile kind of way of filtering, you know, to think about what is transcendent. Like, what is the best foot we can put forward in romance? Like, what would we want to put into the mainstream? And I think having someone from the mainstream would be interesting. Yeah. And I think like having them at the end is the right move. Having reviewers, librarians, because having them at the beginning to weed out something that they might not be as familiar with, I think would have the real potentiality of like harming a subgenre that you're unfamiliar with. So I'm on board with like training people to read subgenres for the things that subgenres excel at. Yeah. And then being like, this is the best of the best of this subgenre. And then moving it into the space of a judge who's maybe less familiar with like the side changeling series or, you know, <laughs> yeah, ghosts or something. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about how to like reframe it so it's a less taintable system process system. Mm-hmm. You know, learning about how RWA was founded and then what it became. Yeah. Really speaks to the fact that systemic racism gets its fingers into every pie, every cultural pie. Mm-hmm. If you're not always diligent, always conscientious, always educating, mm-hmm. I am kind of looking for like, well, how are you going to keep the board answerable and representative? Mm-hmm. What are the plans there? Yeah. I see a proposed format for the Vivian, but I don't see one for, you know, establishing the board. Yeah. And especially since so many of the RWA members who left were members of color because they rightfully felt disenchanted, burned and hurt. I was fascinated to learn only 1900 people left. Yeah, it seemed like way more on Twitter. And 6600 remained. (laughs) Yeah. Also, can I just say those aren't very big numbers. I think at its peak. RWA only had like 10,000. Jesus. Which is huge for what is essentially a writer's union in a genre like this. Like sci-fi doesn't have anything to compare, which again, which is why RWA really did go to bat for authors in major ways that were really useful in terms of organizing labor and valuing labor. But then they just fell short of their promise. Right. And like, I think especially romance authors without an organization to really go to bat for them 
with publishers, it's like, let's remember that one in five books in America published are romance novels. There's a ton of economic generation going on in this genre. And like everybody knows that. But I think like it leads to a lot of places where people get taken advantage of, which is why when Twitter came out with publishing paid me the hashtag and then authors to help their colleagues were talking about what advances that they'd gotten from specific publishing houses. And of course, there was a massive racial disparity. And like it was bad in romance, but it was even worse in YA. Yeah, I think one of the most important labor revolutions we can do is just telling people how much we get paid. Yes. And creating that transparency in spite of the fact that it is an unspoken rule. Like I've never signed a contract that said I would not discuss my compensation. Like I've signed NDAs, which would cover like all manner of stuff. But I think telling colleagues like this is what I get paid. What do you get paid? Allows you to correct wrongs. Yes. And as a company, if you want to be ethical, make everyone's pay transparent. Yes. Because like if you're just trying to get away with paying people as little as possible, like you're not really ethical. No. I mean, that's at a company level, but that should also be at a publishing level, at a freelance level. Like people should be transparent about what they're getting paid, how much money they're making. Right. And I think also people should be transparent about book sales. Yes. Readership. Because you and I often talk about the phenomenon of like a much buzzed about book that then disappears. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how many people actually bought it? Everyone talks about during Thanksgiving and Columbus Day, everyone talks about Heartbeat Braves. That's how we found it. Mm-hmm. But then how many people have actually reviewed Heartbeat Braves? According to Instagram, us and two native readers who are not part of Romance Land. Like that's who's published reviews. Full stop. So much of romance is about visibility, right? Like where you are on the drugstore or Walmart or Target bookshelf, who you're with. How did Debbie May Kogamer get there? And why isn't Beverly Jenkins there? And like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that we don't know how much so-and-so's advance was versus someone else, which means that the new up-and-coming author has less to bargain with at the table because she really just doesn't know what she can ask for, right? Yeah. Because like, if you've never done this before, and let's say you don't even have an agent or you have like, whatever the circumstances is, if you don't know what you can ask for, you won't get it. Yeah. And so like, so much of this is about visibility so much of this is about signal boosting each other and romance has always known that and really done structural disservice to black authors, indigenous authors, authors of color and like slowly but surely trying to correct that because the market is there. The readership is there, (laughs) you know, like people really want HEAs that reflect them, that reflect their lived experiences that feel like them. Yeah. And so the actual work that we have to do is, you know, being like that book wasn't good and like this other book was and like yeah you earned this much from Harlequin Avon paid this much this editor was rude to you in these very specific ways this editor was kind and only uplifted me and like you should work with them and like so much of this whisper culture actually just needs to be a speaking culture exactly the subtweeting isn't super helpful it's not being on both sides of it it hasn't been productive and I think that's what's important and Isabel you make the point 
kind of like, you know, why isn't Beverly Jenkins on the shelves as much as Debbie Maycomer? Fair question. But also, why isn't Katrina Jackson on the shelves as much as Alexa Martin? Mm -hmm. I just got swept up in her books over the course of this quarantine. And they are as good as anything, better than a lot of things that I've read. And Mm -hmm. why doesn't she have physical books and covers? Why doesn't she have a major publisher? The thing is, you know, if I look at like Berkeley romance as it stands now, Mm -hmm. there are some things there, but also there's advocates at Berkeley romance. If there were advocates at every single publishing house, if there were Vivians at every single publishing house, then I do not doubt that Katrina Jackson would have a major contract or whatever it is, however it is you get published. She would be published by one of those people because, you know, a good voice can't go that unnoticed. Mm -hmm. But I don't know because I'm not in romance publishing. This is all just wild speculation on my part. But I think that's also part of the lie that romance publishing, major romance publishing caveat, has been telling. Like It's like these covers don't sell. These stories don't tell. These first names, these last names don't sell. Yeah. Because like there's an assumed person who buys those books and they buy Debbie Maycomer because like that's who they are. But I think like A, that's so easy. That's just... It's just bullshit. It's a false dichotomy. Exactly. So authors say, you know, I can't get published because publishers are racist. And publishers say, well, I can't publish you because readers are racist. And that's so, I mean, just look at the larger pool of people. Mm Mm-hmm. There are fewer people who are publishers than there are people who are readers. So you can actually make more logical distinctions about people in publishing than you can readership. Yes. Yeah. It's just like this broken cycle. And, you know, it's like you and I were like, well, how do we as readers, as mere readers advocate for things? You know, if we are not given the option to buy them. Right. What is our real voice here? And how do we agitate? Right. Like, how do we effectively agitate for structural change in this way. And like RWA remains to be seen, you know? Yeah. I mean, RWA is a unique organization, as you've pointed out, and it's imagined to serve an important function. And then it just shifted into reinforcing existing hierarchies, existing assumptions. Right. And it takes more than, you know, a ghettoized diversity branch or inclusivity branch to not that that exists. This is speaking more broadly about corporations and frustrations I have, Mm -hmm. which is like at all of the major corporations like the Fortune 500, I think there's like two C-level executives who are black and they are both of the chief diversity officers. Yeah. And that's just a way of secluding it and not making racial justice, social justice more broadly a part of corporate culture. Right. But like understand the fear because the fear of making social justice a true part of corporate culture means things like actually making slavery illegal in the United States and actually making child labor something that isn't exploited in the United States in other nations mm-hmm. and holding that to account. And that's a much bigger project. I think people feel daunted by that. Yeah. Discouraged by it. The hugeness 
of it. But if anything, that should just energize you. Like you've got a really big project. You need to start eating that elephant. Unrelated. What were we talking about? Romance. RWA. RWA. Yeah, it's weird to feel strange about a union association that's not the police union. Yeah, because like I, you know, F the FOP. Yeah, but in this way, it's like it's important to hold labor organizations, which, you know, you and I would support under normal times. But it's like, you know, RWA did like atrocious things and like had to be called out. And completely demonstrated how important constant vigilance is on this. Yes. And how publishers and writers really failed. Yes. To maintain their own system. And ultimately, like, failed the readers. I obviously empathize most with that group because that's the group to which I belong. But it's true. They weren't supporting publication of works that tell a broad range of stories. And also, one thing that I think often gets lost in this discussion is romantic diversity, mm-hmm. asexual, polyamory, of course, queer. Those stories are all. Also falling victim to this system. I think in so many ways, this Vox article and really everything that I know about RWA and romance in general and like publishing trends inside the genre, it's weird to see how intense, fraught, and like explicit the culture wars are in a genre. And like, I know if I were to like take myself and like really do a sort of screen cap of a decade of big L literature, I would probably see something similar, but I don't know that it would be this explicit and there wouldn't be as many titles on either side of the culture wars in this way. And I think just because of the rapidity of publishing in romance, it really functions as like a moving timeline of how not only do we have to be constantly vigilant, but like how these arguments are being formed in terms of like who's happily ever afters are prioritized given voice at all or given shelf space. Can we talk about this concept of shelf space? Sure. Which feels so quaint almost, considering the fact that the majority of books now are purchased digitally. Mm-hmm. And like, what does it mean to browse something digitally? I think that's such a great question. And like how those algorithms are formed. Like if I go into my Amazon Kindle or like my Apple books, like they're like, here are the top, you know, 20 that we think you'll like based on what you've read before. And I'm like, how is this algorithm working? Because like some of the I'm like, oh, yeah, like there's a Carolyn Linden. I've read that author for, you know, over a decade. And like, oh, here's the new Tessa Mm -hmm. Dare. But other ones, I'm like, where the hell did you come from? This is nothing that I want to read. I don't want to read about, you know, some police person with a white power tattoo learning to right his wrongs in Tennessee. I'm just like, there's nothing in my shelf that would suggest that that is a thing that I would want. Like, how did you get here and why are you public? And like, how is your publisher maneuvering you through like my Kindle read list? Yeah. I don't know. Do publishers pay for like special space? Like, do you get the thing when you're like hot this week or hot this month? Like, what is that based on? Yeah. How do you get featured? What's the algorithm and what does it favor? And like, how can we hack that system? Yeah. But largely shelf space is a very quaint, a shorthand. Yeah. Of thinking. Yeah. I mean, there's a very small, to be honest, dying group of people who shop at Target for books in person. Also, guys, unless the book literally does not exist anywhere else, please do not purchase from Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. So the shift to the Vivians. So you remain skeptical. I would call myself cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. 
And like one of the things that this move really did is that I didn't know who Vivian Stevens was until this move, you know, which, you know, highlights my own ignorance. But then learning about her and then her original stable of authors other than Beverly Jenkins gave me a lot of space to, like, look at amazing covers and try to get my hands on some of these amazing books. And so in that way, like, as we talk about what it means to, like, have conversations rather than subtweets, this was effective, at least for me personally, because I learned something about our DPA. I learned something about the history of the genre and it lit a fire under my butt to really diversify my back shelf of, you know, old romances, which is our biggest shelf. (laughs) It is. It is. And it's like it's also the space. It's just like it's fun to be in. That feels like a good thing. Yeah. And I think choosing Vivian was also a way of pointing out a lot of these things like you have to be ever vigilant because RWA did slip after its founding and also yeah opens up a conversation about how did Beverly Jenkins get discovered how did we get this really important voice that we still talk about today and of course the less spoken about but still influential you know Sandra Kitt Mm -hmm. why does that matter And, and I think you're exactly right this has reopen the conversation and I think a much more productive way than mere cancel culture could. Yes. All right. Anything else to say? Nope. Same. Yeah. I mean, with that, <laughs> loosen your woes. But never your nusses. Mwah. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.